Hello, everyone. Hope this podcast finds you and finds you well. Uh, Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. Uh, I'm Derek Mulhan, along here with co-host Carrie Ballou. Hello, Derek. How are you today? If uh, anybody was in here, I had a tough time getting that uh, that intro <laughs> intro done. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing very well, very well. Excited to have our guest on today. I think this is going to be a really uh, fun podcast, and we're going to dive deep into getting to know about Emma. Yeah, this is going to be good. Um, we've had two or three doctors on, on the other ones, and now we've got someone who also suffers. So now we have two people in the room. We're going to be able to bounce off each other how things work out. So I think um, our guest has a lot to offer. So I think we should probably just jump right into it. Absolutely. So we'd like to welcome Emma Carroll. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming and joining us today. So Emma, we got wind of you recently when we saw this article in the Sun Chronicle. Service dog keeps Foxborough owners anxiety at bay was the name of it. Yes. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm 25 and I grew up in Foxborough, so right around the corner. Um, spent almost my entire life there. I got my first degree at Bridgewater State University in psychology. So I was working in psychiatric hospitals. So not only am I a sufferer, but I worked as a mental health technician in these um, intensive like inpatient units as well. How would you, I'm just kind of curious, how would you say that your experience with inpatient has kind of affected you at this point in your in your life and your experience? It's been both good and bad, uh, for sure. I mean, I have some lasting PTSD from some attacks that I sustained while I was working in the hospitals, which is unfortunate. But overall, I would say my experience is pretty good. I worked at two different hospitals and my job was hard. It was really hard. We were the people with patients, you know, eight hours a day, 16 hours a day, every single day, whereas, you know, doctors and nurses aren't always the ones right there. I mean, they obviously do play a big part in patient care, but they're not always with them every second. Exactly. So it it was definitely hard, but I think having my diagnoses and struggling myself made me better at my job because I could see where some of these people weren't were coming from, it wasn't entirely foreign to me. Some of the things that I would hear, especially from the adolescents when I worked in that unit, a lot of it was things I had experienced myself, feelings I had had before situations I had found myself in. So a lot of it was very familiar to me. And it was nice to play a part in helping someone who needed the help like I may have. So obviously is a very relatable experience for you and and I'm sure that assisted and helped with your um, relationship with the patients that you were working with that they felt like you know Emma understands. You kind of balance this fine line of you know care provider and you know having a personal relationship because obviously like the first thing they teach you is not to give anybody any personal information And they try and restrict what you tell them, but obviously that can interfere with doing your job because sometimes you just need the person to trust you. And sometimes getting that person to trust you is sharing your story, is sharing parts of yourself that you wouldn't necessarily be allowed to share or should share. Um, So you kind of would have to pick and choose like who you felt that really needed that side of you to come out because not everybody does, but especially, you know, a lot of the adolescents they're more impressionable and sometimes they need someone that they can relate to more on a personal level than a care provider level. 
So um, part of my role at Fuller, besides working on in-community relations, is I also have the opportunity to do per diem work working as an activities therapist on the inpatient units. Uh, You're absolutely right about maintaining boundaries and keeping boundaries, but it is a balance. It is a fine line, right? Because you're trying to gain trust so that you're creating the most beneficial therapeutic environment possible. You know, Um, as you understand working inpatient, it's a very short time frame that you're working with these individuals. Three to five days sometimes the average turnaround you know I mean some patients end there end up there for much longer but the average turnaround is three to five days so you only have three to five days to do something they're in this foreign place with a bunch of people they don't know with no control over anything that's happening to them and it's terrifying and so sometimes you have to make them realize that you're human too so they don't have to be as scared I think that's a lot better because um when my first experiences with with panic attacks, I would go to the ER, mm-hmm. and you want to talk about hectic. You know, you're talking about chest pains. You know, you think you're having a heart attack, and now within three or four minutes, they've got you all hooked up, and you're and you want to look at the monitor, and your heart's racing, your pulse is racing, and you're like, "That's it. I'm gonna die. I'm mm-hmm. crazy. I'm gonna die." Those are the first two things that happen. I mean, more people need to go to an inpatient. Obviously. We've always said if you're having a problem, dial 911 because that's the safest thing to do. But the problem, I think, with hospitals now is they need to see as many patients as possible and get these people out. I remember one time I went in there, and, and I heard the doctor say he's just looking for attention, give him an Ativan, and send him home. That's my biggest pet peeve with doctors is when they won't listen to the person when they know something is wrong, especially if you're in a crisis or panic situation. You know yourself. When you're having a bad panic attack and you know you're having a bad panic attack, the worst thing you can possibly hear is hearing someone tell you that you're making it up or that it's all in your head or that it's not real, that you're looking for attention because that's not the truth. And unfortunately, like most people come to inpatient hospitals through the ER and that's the only way they can really get there because you need that referral to get you from the ER into an inpatient setting. And it's unfortunate that that's the experience that most people have going through the ER, and it's not uncommon. Was your diagnosis before you were working at the hospital? Yes. Okay, so I want to applaud you. I think what you have done is very brave because, I mean, here you are with panic, anxiety, and then you go right into the belly of the beast. You know there are triggers. I am extremely impressed by you doing that did it did it help you um i know you said you had a couple of attacks but i mean you were always told you can't avoid places where you had panic attacks i'm not were there people attacked you or you had panic attacks at the hospitals at the ptsd if you don't mind me asking Uh, both actually um i've had panic attacks at work um and you're right you can't avoid it you can't i mean sometimes it just happens and it made me more aware of the things that were triggering me and what to do about it. So if I was having a panic attack at work, obviously I can't just leave. I can't say, nope, sorry, gotta go. Like it doesn't work that way in a psych hospital. So you have to find your own ways to mitigate that wouldn't necessarily be the coping skills you wanna use. Like going by yourself and laying under a heavy blanket and listening to some music. Maybe you can't do that because you're at work. So maybe you just need to take 20 minutes in the bathroom and you tell your coworkers, I need to take 20 minutes. And you need to have an open conversation with your coworkers that, you know, sometimes you just need a break. Sometimes you need that. And you have to be open and honest with the people around you because they can't help you 
if you're not honest with them. If you're not telling them what's going on, they can't help you. Yeah, it's like when I when I see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they're only as good as what you tell them. Exactly. I hope you wear this with a badge of honor. I'm very Thank open you. about my mental illness because I suffered with it for so long. I came out on Facebook four years ago about it, and everybody either looked about it or understood it. Mm-hmm. But people who are listening to this, it's like being afraid of fire and becoming a firefighter. Mm-hmm. You know, being afraid of water and, and becoming a lifeguard. You had this diagnosis, yet you still went in there. That is impressive. I can't tell you the words to describe, like, what I'm feeling right now. That That is just, I mean, I was a guy who would avoid the mall. You know, anywhere I had a panic attack, I was vo- avoiding. I was stuck in my house for nine months, and I wanted my life back. There are people who still suffer. They just they sit on their couch and they wait to die. It depends on how, you know, your coping skills, and people have to remember that it can't be cured. It can only be controlled. Now when I have an anxiety attack, it might last maybe 10, 20 seconds because my coping skills kick in. I check my blood sugars first, mm-hmm. and, and you must have that too. You must have your own little a checklist. Well, I think it's important to also remember that just because you're managing it well now doesn't mean that you'll be okay tomorrow. I mean, sometimes it just changes. Sometimes there's things in your life that change, and all of a sudden you're not managing it well anymore, and that happened to me. Did you have um, anticipatory anxiety? Yeah. Because I would have that too. I'd be like, I'm going to have a panic attack and it would stop me from going out. Yeah. Um, I actually had to take a leave of absence from school this past fall semester because I stopped being able to leave my house. And sometimes you just revert. That had never happened to me before. It had never gotten so bad that I couldn't leave my house. I always had problems with big groups, being in large spaces. I always had problems with that, but it was nothing that ever confined me to my room or to my house and that did happen and thankfully Aurora came home shortly after. So Emma tell us a little bit you know we talk about Aurora we've mentioned obviously this history. So Aurora is my service dog in training she just turned eight months old so she's still a baby Um, she's still learning like basic good behavior for dogs essentially right now. So I got Aurora through Golden Opportunities for Independence. They're a nonprofit organization based out of Walpole, Mass., so it's right around the corner. What's great about them is they're the only service dog organization in this state, or actually even in New England, that will train a service dog for PTSD for people who are not veterans. Obviously, they do for people who are veterans, and they usually take priority, but they recognize that not everyone is a veteran who experiences PTSD, and that's really great because the closest I found other than that was California, and that's not accommodating at all, Um, and they're also one of the few that train service dogs for seizure alerts, so if someone's having a seizure, the dog can learn to alert the person 10 minutes ahead of time so they can get to a safe place to lay down so they don't get hurt. Um, They can also be trained to like respond to get help and things along those lines. That's what's really great about them. And they're still a small company. um, And the owner is actually the sister of a very good friend of my mom's, which I didn't know this at the time. But she's also a cardiac nurse and her name's Pauline. And she, I wouldn't be here without her right now. She is the most amazing person I think I've ever met. She does this simply to help people. Aurora has been a blessing in my life. She came to me to help out with some PTSD, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, stuff along those lines. We Well, I decided that I was going to raise her because a lot of recipients get them at the two-year mark when they're fully trained. And I decided that for me, part of my therapy was going to be raising her 
because it meant that I was going to have to leave my room because she needed to go out for a walk or she needed food or something like that. That's what I decided part of my therapy was going to be, was actually working with her, taking her to training every day because I wasn't leaving my house. So even getting in my car and driving her to training was a big deal. Yeah. Um, I just went into a grocery store for the first time in six months, probably three weeks ago. So part of my therapy was her. And I just think it's important to note that like, Sometimes you go backwards for a little while, well, but you don't there, have to stay are, there. Yeah, there are peaks and valleys. I mean, Austin knows that. By the way, Austin is our awesome technical engineer. Um, past six months, I was in a deep depression. It wasn't enough to keep me from work, but there are always new coping skills. I mean, I go back to my journals. I go back to my mom. She's been with me through this whole thing. Ma, is this what a panic attack felt like? Because I go longer and longer without them. And then when one hits you, it's like all new again, because you, you, the good thing is you forget how they are. Mm-hmm. The bad thing is you forget how they are. So you've got to reference people. So I, I do referencing, you know, I'll look at my journals and it will be, you know, afraid I'm going to die of a heart attack because my dad died of a heart attack at 48. I was only 19. And then I'll look at the very end. Well, I heard on the news that a medium might hit the earth in 10 to 20 years. Your mind snowballs. And I'm wondering if that's yeah. You suffer from the same thing. Um, actually, my grandmother just passed away about two months ago, um, and she was the only grandparent I ever lost. The other three were gone before I was born. And shortly after she died, I started having these terrible panic attacks, thinking, well, what if my dad dies? And she was his his mother, so that's kind of why it was more my dad and not my mom, but I was like, well, what if he dies? What am I going to do? I'm not going to hear this anymore. I'm not going to have this anymore. He's not going to do this. He's not going to be around for this. And like you said, it just snowballs and it's overwhelming. That was the first major death in my family. And that was a big one. When someone's having a panic attack, or at least when I have a panic attack, I basically go blind and deaf. And this, this is going to sound weird, but like I'll see everything in front of me, but there's too much in front of me. It's very, very overwhelming. It's like an overload of stimulus. Like too much is happening at once. Too many noises, too many sounds, too many colors, too many people. There's just too much when I have a panic attack. And so the reason, you know, laying under a heavy blanket and laying in the dark helps me is because it reduces stimulus. So I'm not seeing as many things because it's dark. I'm not feeling, you know, all these different things, people touching me, a breeze, nothing. I just feel the weight of the blanket on me. And the weight in general helps suppress your central nervous system, which helps calm you down anyway. And then, you know, my dog just petting her, it releases oxytocin. It's been scientifically proven at this point that petting an animal will release oxytocin, which is the feel-good hormone uh, neurotransmitter, so you feel better, um, and that brings it down a little bit. So when people are having panic attacks, or at least me anyway, like, I lose rational thought. Like, I'm not thinking clearly anymore because I'm thinking of too many things at once to be thinking clearly. My mind's racing. If you think about, like, those flip books... They used to have when you were a kid and how fast you have to flip them oh, to see the a, picture. That's a great analogy. Imagine right doing that, but you can't see a picture. It's still blurry. It's going that fast, but it's still blurry. That's what's going on in my head. So I have all these thoughts, but I can't piece them together into make into making like a rational thought. I don't know if that helps. At For, all. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. The, the best way I try to describe a panic attack is, Carrie, have you ever been in like a near-miss car accident? 
you thought you were definitely going to get hit. And yeah, after that happens, I tell people, you ever been in one of those near-miss car accidents when you thought you were, you were going to get T-boned and you were going to die, but you made it through, and then you have to take yourself, you have to take a breath and be like, all right, I'm still here. I say, that's, do that and multiply it times a thousand. And that's, that's to me, how I have to tell people. And because forget everybody's the part when that. you realize you're okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> take out that part. People experience panic attacks differently. So not every panic attack is going to be the same. Your panic attack is going to differ than mine. Things that help you or might not help me. It's different for everyone. For me, it just happens to feel like an overwhelming amount of things happening at once. And it does feel like a near-miss car accident. I mean, I... I I totaled a brand new car and a deer on the highway a couple years ago, and I thankfully was okay, but I had full airbag deployment, and I had to pull over the side of the road. My car was completely gone, and I called my dad, and I was just like, Dad, my car. I wasn't even thinking, like, am I okay? Because I was panicking. Yeah. I was like, let's worry about the car instead, because that's what's really important right here. No. So my dad actually had to walk me through getting off the phone with him and calling 911 because I wasn't thinking anymore and I had nothing to calm me down. It can be different for everybody and comforting things are different for everybody too. So like... It's all different, but it's all the same. It's it's, tough to understand, but I And the best thing you can do if you're witnessing someone have a panic attack is first of all, don't tell them that it's in their head and nothing is wrong. Well, That's... don't you like those Dr. Phil's? <laughs> hey, stop panicking. Well, thank you, doctor. You know, yeah, where were like, you all this time? Great. Like, I would have done that a half yeah. hour ago if I could. Um, <laughs> oh, but... when you're depressed. Hey, cheer up. Snap yeah, out thank of it. Dr. Oz. You know, we appreciate would that. Would you tell me that if I had a broken leg? <laughs> yeah. No. Walk it off. Walk it off. Right. <laughs> so, the best thing that I found is to ask someone point blank what do you need right now because a lot of the time that interrupts the thoughts it like stops everything that's running through people's minds and they're like wait what do i need right now and sometimes they don't know and that's okay too but asking that first question gets them at least in the back of their mind it's it's rolling a little bit what do i need what do i need so maybe they can't figure it out and then maybe offer things that you know the person enjoys doing so maybe be like hey do you want to play a video game Do you want me to throw on some Halo or do you want me to grab this puzzle? We can start this. Options, but keep it easy. Did you get that um, from working inpatient? Um, I see that happen a lot on inpatient units. I think it happened mostly like through my own experience, but saw it happen to a degree in hospitals, not nearly as much, much as it should be done in hospitals and your options i'm sure vary are limited hospital yeah or your options are limited yeah but like if you're at a person's house and they're having a panic attack and you know they enjoy certain things you can always ask them do you want me to do and i think what's important is you doing the work too so if you see someone having a panic attack and you get to the bottom line they do want to play halo don't make them set up halo do it for them so they can just get in and play So they don't have to think about it. It's already done for them. And it seems like a really, really small thing, but it helps them get out of it faster because they're already in the game. They didn't have to worry about going through and setting it up because that can be overwhelming when you're having a panic attack. Panic attacks can be debilitating. Yeah. And sometimes they just can't set it up. I, I freeze. I'm a freezer. I just freeze when I have a panic attack and I don't know what I need. And you can ask me a thousand times, what do you need? And I will tell you, I don't know. But if you get me doing something, then I'm okay. So the big thing now is just 
giving me my dog. <laughs> and then I figure it out from there. But other people, like I said with the Halo example, just get it set up for them so you can just hand them the controller and they can play. If they say, yes, I want to play Halo, just do it for them. It sounds really small, but it saves them time because they're anxious. So if they do try and set it up, it's probably going to take longer because they might be shaky. They might drop the controller. They might not be able to get the disc in the Xbox. And those things can be really overwhelming. And like when you're having a panic attack, even though it sounds really little, but dropping that controller once might be like the end all. (laughs) Like... For some reason, it just might set off like an even worse thing. So just set it up and get it going for them. Just make it a little bit easier on the person. Well, and I think you bring up a good point as well about making a suggestion versus offering a helping hand. Yeah. It's like, you know. I think it's important to do both. Oh, I think you should, you know, have you thought about maybe doing this and that? And you know what? I know that I am confident that people who suffer from panic disorders, anxiety, depression, They've tried can it all. write their <laughs> own books yeah. on what to do. It's not that you don't know what to do. It's just that in the moment, you forget you don't, everything. It's forget, gone. Or you like, don't know what you need. Your mind goes blank. All rational so, thinking just gone. goes out the window. Gone. So it's, I think it's important. So to, I can sit here and tell you guys all day like what I would like to have done if I'm having a panic attack. But if you ask me in the middle of a panic t- attack what I needed, I would not be able to tell you one word. Do as I I'm say, talking. not as I do. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that really emphasizes and, and really um, hits home when it comes to the point of, of being more open and, and communicating about your, your mental health. And a lot of the time, like when that happens, you feel trapped in your own body. Like you can't get out what you need, even though this person's asking you. And like, you know that if you were in your right state of mind, you could say something. And that's equally frustrating. You You feel like you're being smothered almost like you can't speak you can't communicate i i can only imagine it's like someone who's mute and can't can't communicate with the outside world easily like that's the only comparison that i can really think of that when i feel so frozen that's what it's like um if you don't mind me asking um are you on any type of medication right now yes i'm on a boatload of medication which we're hoping with aurora in the picture we'll be able to whittle it down a little bit. So I'm on a pretty decent dose of lithium right now, um, a, a moderate dose of Remron, and I'm also on Valium for the panic attacks, which are really, I mean, Valium's really incapacitating when you need to take it. So it's not like you can go to work, have a panic attack, pop a Valium, and you're fine. No, you're probably going to fall asleep on your desk. So you kind of have to find other ways to manage it during the day unless you're okay with falling asleep standing up um but I started looking into other options because I didn't like all these medications that I was taking I just didn't like how the medications make me feel all the time like I feel really tired I feel really drained I've gained a lot of weight from the medication and like trying to find the right combination of meds is by far the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced in my entire life because maybe for three months it works and then all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. And every time you go on a med and you come off a med, you have a bunch of side effects. And I'm like the the side effect queen. Every side effect possible, I'll get it. If it's nausea, I'm throwing up. Like if it's headaches, I have migraines for two weeks. Like, 
And it's awful having to live through that because you're you're basically sick all the time. And one of the worst things I don't think people realize about anti-anxiety meds is one of the major side effects is, is anxiety. suicidal thoughts suicidal and anxiety. And anxiety. <laughs> I mean, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I was on Paxil for 16 years. My body got accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of hope here. I was on seven meds mm-hmm. for, my, for my anxiety. I'm down to two. I take mm-hmm. Effexor, which has been a godsend. I mean, that thing. I tried it and it didn't work for me. Now, see, so yeah, everybody's body chemistry is different because it is a chemical imbalance. I had horrible, horrible side effects from it. Yeah. So I'm on Effexor yeah. and, and Clonopin. And I then, was on Clonopin. And then um, the doctors give me 10 Ativans for the year, which, you know, they worked right away. They After being a frequent flyer at the hospital, they finally realized, hey, maybe we should just give him Ativan so he doesn't keep coming here. But in the, in the five years, five, six years, they give me 10 a year. I've only had to use one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there is hope. I mean, you're going to be able to get off a lot of these meds. That's that's the goal because, I mean, with the lithium especially in high doses, like I have to get my blood checked every month to make sure I'm not going into kidney failure. I'm 25. I don't want to have to be doing that right now. That's not something that should be failing me at, at this age. So if I can get on a lower dose of lithium, it's going to be better for my body in the long run, um, as long as my mental state stays okay, which Aurora has been learning to help with. So she, right now, when I, when I start to have panic attacks, we're teaching her to lay down on me for a deep pressure therapy. I do have a weighted blanket, but I like having her on me better. First of all, she weighs more. Uh, and second of all, she's a live, warm being. And, you know, she'll lay down, I can hug her, and that calms me down. So a couple weeks ago when I first started my new job, the first couple days were really, really rough for me. It was really hard adjusting to a nine to five and I would come home and have these awful panic attacks and my mom would help me get her on top of me so I could breathe. I was, you know, hyperventilating, throwing up because I was crying so hard and I I just couldn't stop. And my mom brought my dog to me and within 10 minutes it was gone. No medication nothing. Just her being around me and petting her and having her with me was enough comfort that I didn't even need to take the Valium. That's un- unconditional love. Yeah. And she follows me around everywhere because when I'm home, I have to feed her. So that bond develops. And that's another reason why I chose to uh, raise her myself because when you get the dog at two years, sometimes you don't bond with the service dog. And it happens, and it's not the end of the world, but you want that bond. So we don't have to worry about that. We already bonded because I'm the one that gives her all her food. You're raising her, absolutely. Yeah. And she gets to learn your idiosyncrasies too. Right. Which, so she knows when yeah. I when I start getting to panic. And right now, it freaks her out, but she's going to learn to recognize those signs and to do something instead. But right now, she's a puppy, and she's just learning, like, this is what it looks like. So it's been interesting so far. But it's nice to even have that one experience knowing, like, I had this really bad panic attack, and I didn't even need to take any medication because she just helped right away. And that's a, and that's a good thing right there. Yeah. Because you know what? When, you, when the dog's not there... You're going to be like, okay, the doggy's not here, but I made it through with the doggy. So, mm-hmm. you know what, what What can I do so I don't have to pop a pill? I mean, I can tell you right now, if this was four months ago, I would not be sitting here talking to you guys. Like, this would be terrifying to me where I would have holed up in my room well, and not come here. congratulations. And so you know what, things... She's, she's doing stuff even when she's not with me. <laughs> things things do get better 
I mean, there are peaks and valleys, but, you know, I've been through it. Yeah. I didn't have a doggy, but, you know, people who don't suffer from it, they just, they don't understand. Carrie, you know that. I mean, you see these people all the time. It's hard to understand. And I mean, it's really hard to place anybody in the situation and be like, you need to understand this if they've never been through it. It's just hard. I mean, people go through periods of their life where they experience some depression and some anxiety because that's normal for people to experience. But people who have like chronic issues with it, it's hard to explain that to somebody. Yeah, because it can't be cured. It can only be controlled. I, you know, I keep telling people, you know, I'm broken. I'm never going to be fixed. I can still live a good life, you know, and I lost friends. I lost jobs. But you know what? The people who cared about me, they researched it. Mm-hmm. And then they started having attacks. When I came out on Facebook about it, people were emailing me. They were private messaging me. Hey, I suffer from the same thing, but I'm not as open about it as you. But you know, I'm glad you came forward because there are only so many times. And I'm sure you're gonna. I'm sure you I've can. I've gotten it so much. Like this was when I first started my GoFundMe page. That was the first time I came out on Facebook of having any sort of problem. Like like my close friends knew, but not not to, not not to what extent. World. Yeah. And when I would start getting donations towards Aurora's training, um, people would attach messages with like, oh, I've experienced something similar. Or now I'm even getting people saying, my daughter is really suffering from things like this. Can I talk to you about it? What can I do? And there's someone who's going through the same program that I am, who suffers from a lot of the same things that I do. And she's a few years younger. She's still in college. And I was, you know, talking to her mom and I was like, pass her along to me like I'm not that far away from where she is now I mean being 20 is not that far away I'm only five years older I know exactly what she's going through right now like I've been there in college isolated alone dealing with all these things with friends who don't really understand and I'm sure when you talk to these people when you say what they're feeling they're like well, how did you know that? It's like this. It's like this revelation. They know they're not alone because you're already answering the question both before they've even asked it. I have a lot of friends now who struggle with it, but I said, unfortunately, but fortunately, um, you know, I've been through the game. I still have all my books and stuff. Page twenty-seven of the Panic Attack Handbook. No one has ever died from a panic attack. Mm-hmm. I always tell people I'm never too wrapped up in my own problems to not be able to help somebody who's who's suffering from this. Nine times out of ten, I'd rather help someone else suffering with it than help myself suffering. Well, you're gonna, you you might pick up something that somebody else is is using as a technique and pick that it up yourself. That might help you. I used to wear a rubber band on my snapping you know, on your wrist. See, yeah. You know, kindred spirits. A lot know, of or, cutters do that yeah. because it feels like they're still cutting, but they're not actually cutting. It's like our own little, you know, clubhouse of, of, of people. Yeah. It also contributes to the fact that the purpose of this podcast is to, to break stigma and to emphasize that people are not alone when it comes to mental health and, and, and a lot of the comorbidities that come with it. And so you guys are, are, are sitting here as two role models and examples to individuals to say, hey, let's break the stigma. This is what's going on with me. I'm not ashamed to talk about it. These are some of the coping skills. You're trading secrets, like you're trading baseball cards, like or not even secrets, but coping skills. We talked about the gaming. And that's why I put my story out there because I knew there are people like my friend going through this program who are too scared to put their story out there. And at this point, I'm like, 
who, you know, who cares? Like, it's going to be with me the rest of my life. Like, might as well just face it now. Soon I'm going to have a dog with me everywhere I go. So people are going to ask. And sure enough, people at work, even though she's not even with me yet, are already asking why. So for me, I was like, you know what? I kind of have to confront this anyway. Let's make it public. Let's make it everywhere so that if I can even just help that one girl, that one girl get through college, that's good enough for me because I could have used someone like that when I was in college. So I try and like pay that back because be, I know what I needed at the time and didn't necessarily get. I, you got to give yourself more credit because what you've done. Probably. Is, no, seriously. It, it, you know, a lot of people brush it off. A lot of people say, like you said, role models. I don't think of myself as a role model. I think of myself as someone who's just trying to educate people and whether it's role model and everybody's like, you know, you know, you get all these likes on how you're so brave to do this and blah, blah, blah. It felt like it was a big monkey was lifted off my shoulders because you can only, my car broke down. How many times can my car break down? Right. How many times can, can I be sick? And finally say like, I'm not sick. I'm just having a really bad day is a relief. You're at the point where you've made your story public. So now the mental illness does not define you. Mental illness defined me for the longest time until that last thing when I made it public to everybody. And that was like the biggest thing off, off my back. At 25, to be doing this has got to be scary, but oh, I'm not it's, gonna em- lie. it's, it's empowering. It should be empowering to you. And you're going to be able to look back on this and say, wow, you know what? I was brave. And every little victory, especially with panic, anxiety, depression, all that other stuff, you have to pat yourself on the back for every little battle that you win. Well, I was going to say, especially with the anxiety, like it's absolutely terrifying because you feel like everybody's looking at you and all of a sudden everybody knows your deepest, darkest secrets and they know all the horrible things about you that you don't necessarily want everybody to know. But you made it public, so now it's out there. So with the anxiety, sometimes it comes like all eyes are on me. That's what it feels like sometimes, and it's a lot, and it's scary, and I don't necessarily see myself as a role model as much as I see myself as someone who wants to teach other people about these things and how they can affect other people's lives. And I think that's part of being a, a role model is to to be an example, but also to be an educator and to, and to emphasize you're not perfect. This isn't like, I, I learned how to conquer mental illness. I learned how to conquer my anxiety. Oh, you, no. you come up with skills. <laughs> you It's trial and error. It'll always be trial and error. But what you are is you're making yourself a public example or so you're putting yourself out there not everybody's gonna have you know you know you obviously aren't telling all your friends hey post on facebook that you're suffering with this so sometimes it just takes a few to kind of stand out and say this is what i've done this is what i've been going through um you are not alone and there are people out there who are experiencing similar symptoms and we all have stressors and we all have struggles but don't keep it in your head don't keep it in your in your thoughts there you know I think that there is a lot of folks out there that do continue to feel like they're stigmatized if they even were to talk about it with their own family and I felt that way with my family because half of you know my dad's side of the family was strict Irish Catholic and Irish Catholics like to pretend that nothing's ever wrong and you just shove everything away. My stepfather was Portuguese. They don't believe in in mental illness. Yeah, Nothing's ever wrong. You're fine. Yeah. It just, life goes on. You don't don't talk about it. And when when I first got diagnosed, there was very little known about what panicking. I mean, the Paxil that they put me on was actually for your heart. 
and they yeah, figured it was it a band aid. Yeah, it was you know, and and the stuff got better. And I may seem fine. There is no magic pill. No, you got you have to fight every day to get out of bed. Yep. When people have a bad day, they have a bad day. But people with mental illness have really bad days that could cost them their lives. When so, my grandma passed, and I was you know going to my therapy and like actually talked to my therapist about it. She was like, you know, for once, you're worrying about normal things like you should be worried about this this is what you should be feeling Isn't that a great thing to hear and for once i was like oh i'm finally feeling an appropriate thing get for the given situation because this hasn't happened and i don't even know how long and you get kind of lost in that that you forget how you should feel in certain situations and then you have plenty of other people telling you how you should feel and that's equally frustrating because you're not feeling that at that time. So you get the pressure that you're putting on yourself for how you think you should feel and what other people think you should feel too. You got to pat yourself on the back. You've got any small victory. I made it through this attack and I didn't have to do this and I didn't have to do that. People have to realize with mental illness, every day you get up. Yeah. I mean, awesome. This new job that I have is such a big deal for me. And what are you doing? Uh, I actually work at Meditech, which they design software for hospitals. So I, I actually don't know if Arbor is one of the hospitals under Fuller Meditech. Fuller is familiar with Meditech. Um, so I just started there about a month ago. So I'm I'm working on their um, bracelet scanning application. Oh, so nice. whenever you scan a med and scan someone's bracelet in the hospital, that's the application that I support technically. Um, I'm still training, so I'm not. I don't have any like clients or anything yet, but. I've been able to be open and honest with them about everything that's going on, which I've never had before. Like, I've never had such a warm welcome at a job. I've never had, obviously, a service dog going to work, and everyone's been so excited about her and so welcoming. But, of course, then comes the questions about why I have her to begin with. And I do have a mix of, um, you know, the mental and the physical because I just got diagnosed with fibromyalgia, so I am going to, My mom has that. So she's going to help mitigate those symptoms, but that's not why I got her. I mean, the reason I got her really was the bipolar disorder and panic attacks. Like, that was originally it. So all those questions then come up. So now I can be really open with the people at work, and if I'm having a bad day, I can tell them. And they really encourage the use of sick days, which at hospitals, you get shamed if you use your sick days, and then you get shamed if you come in sick sometimes. And you can't be as open with, I'm having a really hard time at a hospital because they need the staff because they need a certain number of employees by law for the amount of patients that they have on unit. So they can't be as forgiving. Whereas at this job, everyone's been so understanding. And if I'm having a bad day, I can just tell them which is nice. And so I think that you bring up a really good point with that because you're right. When you were working in inpatient and direct care, you were taking care of people. Mm-hmm. The, your your presence, if you're not there, there has to be a replacement for you in yep. that setting to help to, um, you know, to take care of the individuals that you were working with. And unlike a job such as working at Meditech or an office job or even my job, I'll be perfectly honest, my job at, at, at Fuller if I don't go in for a day because I'm sick or I take a personal day, then it's okay because my computer sits there. There's no direct consequence to me not being there except getting a little bit behind on emails, right? But the direct consequence when you're working with individuals or you're working in a service field or you're working in retail, let's get bigger here, when you're working in certain industries, there's a different sense of reliance. And so I think what 
what I'm hearing and what I what I'm seeing with you is this was a really good transition for you because given and I'm gonna say it's it's a disability. It's yes, a, given, it is. given your disability, you decided to make a choice and find a field that better accommodates. Just and the I same way you found I mean, I had ankle surgery in July. It was just a freak accident. I fell down the stairs and tore the ligaments in my ankle and I ended up being put out of work from the hospital because I couldn't be on my feet for eight hours. And they were like, well, that means you can't really work. Next and time, come up with a better story, like you thwarted a robbery. <laughs> the or, worst was know, that yeah. I, had to, I had to call an ambulance because it was my right foot and no one was home. So I couldn't drive myself to the ER. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I had to call an ambulance and someone I went to high school with was one of the firemen that showed up. And I was like, oh God, this is embarrassing. Um, and they were not happy when I called them in tears waiting for the ambulance to come. And part of me understood why, uh, because they needed a body, like it could have been anyone, but they needed a body on the floor. And I just called out two, two hours before my shift. Obviously, I couldn't help it, but it was understandable that they were mad because they needed someone there. But as a person in that situation, it's extremely stressful when you need to call out because you can't help something and they're not being as forgiven. So if you need a mental health day, you can't really take one because you don't feel like you can. So yes, I did have to find a field that I could work in mentally, but also physically because I still can't be on my foot for that long. So I was already in, in the process of transitioning. I started a computer science degree, um, but it was actually getting to the job that was the hard part. But I did have to find something that was more accommodating for me. And sometimes that's what has to happen. I mean, like we said, we're going to have this diagnosis forever. So in my mind, I didn't want to be at a job where I was going to be worried about calling out forever because that's stressful. That's unneeded stress that you don't need in your life. And if you can find someplace else that treats you the way you need I don't want to say better because it wasn't the hospital's fault you know it wasn't their fault that they had to if you don't mind treat you that way I, it, it, I don't know if this makes sense it wasn't a good fit for you no it wasn't and that's and gonna be the rest of, I of loved your life my job that's and I was fit. good at my job and my disability helped me do my job better but at the end of the day it was too much and working inpatient it takes a really special type of person to stay there and especially stay there for a really long time and so for me you know I Put in five years, I, I did my time, and that's all I have left. And that's okay. That's okay to me. Don't say um, that's all you have left. Don't. For the mental health, like, impatient setting, that's all I have left. I can't do it to myself anymore, and that's okay. And people, I mean, I think it's an important lesson for me that I, I learned that I needed to step back. That's a good lesson for anybody, because people will stay in a job because, hey, I'm making a ton of money. But it's, it's toxic. It. It's, it's a toxic environment. It. Yeah, it's not worth it. Nothing, no amount of money or benefits is worth your mental health. At, at the end of the day, none of it is worth it. So if you are torturing yourself to go to work every day, you might need to look at something that fits you a little bit better because it's not worth putting yourself through that. You feel miserable all the time. Yeah. So and I know we were talking um, off air about you use video games for distraction. Yes. So... Um, I use them too. What I'm having a problem now is I'm always better when I'm working. So I want to I want to ask you a question for my own sake. I am having trouble managing my off days. Mm -hmm. I will lie in bed all day. I have millions of 
you know, comic books I need to price out, um, cards that I need to piece out by team, by player, and stuff like that. But on my days off, you I'm like, you don't want to do anything. Right. But you know just as well as I do that you can't keep your mind going 24 mm-hmm. 7. I think people don't realize that when you deal with this it's every exhausting. day mentally is just as draining as physically. Um, but now that I'm working two jobs, now when I get a day off, I don't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, I'm like, well, I, I deserve the rest. Well, no, I need to keep on a schedule. So going back to work the next day isn't as hard. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So, like I said, this transition to a nine to five has been really tough, especially because I was out of work for a year. And the only thing getting me up in the morning since January has been my dog. She would wake me up in the morning and she had to go out and she had to eat and then I had to get her to training. Um, so she has been really great at keeping me on a schedule because I have to take her out every morning. So even though Saturdays I might want to sleep all day, I can't because she still needs to get out and go and she doesn't always have training and on Saturdays. So that helps. But as far as like the rest of the day goes, I try and find something small. So you're talking about all these comic books you have to get priced out. That's a lot to think of at once. Like, those are a lot of things. You have how many comic books that you have to price? Hundreds? Probably, probably about 6,000. Yeah. So I would I would do something smaller than that. So maybe if that's even just say, I'm going to price this genre today. Like, literally just making problems into smaller versions of themselves. And working on that so you still feel like you're completing a goal because you set that goal like I'm going to complete this genre or this series today. And it can just be that small. Um, And then you can gradually get bigger. And so it doesn't seem as overwhelming to you because you're taking these smaller problems, but you're also reducing the bigger problem by doing that. You have to take the smaller steps. And then you feel more productive and then you can get the rest of your day going that way so maybe you decide you're gonna price these comic books before lunch and then you're gonna have lunch and then if you didn't finish which it's okay you're gonna finish that after lunch and then you might pick up another genre but you might might want to leave that next genre until sunday and that's okay too you just have to know what you can handle and don't overwhelm yourself whatever problem you're looking at try to see if you can make it a smaller problem in any way that you can. And in computer science and the degree that I'm in now, we call those types of problems recursive problems. And you can actually code them that way, uh, where it just literally repeats the code for the same problem over and over. So if you think like a factorial, five times four times three times two times one, it's just taking that problem and making it smaller every single time by one. But it's the same process all over again. Does that make I'd, sense? I'd, no, I'd, I'd never thought about doing that because, like, when I dive into it, something, it's all or nothing. Break it down. You know, and I, maybe the overwhelming part is part of it. You know, I mean, I try to plan things like I'll go to a flea market. Mm-hmm. But, like I said, I can't keep my mind busy all day long on my days off until I'm thinking about, you know, what I have to do for work. I want to enjoy my days off. I don't want to sleep all day depressed and then wake up. That's that's very helpful. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, because now I'm thinking, you know, I could do just Spider Man, I could do just Superman, and my baseball cards. I could do, you know, I'm gonna get all the Milwaukee Brewer guys out or all the Red Sox stuff out, 
and being and sometimes able to, you just need that prompt someone else to like give you that idea and now you're already spiraling off of it and going deeper into things that I probably wouldn't have even thought about but you've got it now yeah and but you've, now you you've can given me the initial thought so I, I very much appreciate yeah. that that's why because I'm always looking for knowledge need. yeah and sometimes that's all people need is just a little push like why don't you try this and sometimes it works and you can just break sometimes it I'll do there. it at like two in the morning if mm-hmm. I can't sleep yep I'll just stop, you know, doing cards, and that's my that's my escape, mm-hmm. you know. And then I'll fall back asleep. So, um, Carrie, this girl is she's a she's a <laughs> she's a real uh, ambassador. Absolutely, I will say the computer science degree definitely. Like, I haven't finished the degree yet, but the thought process has definitely helped me a lot because everything in computer science, computers are all logical thinking. They're step by step processes. And when we get caught up in our anxiety, we lose logical thought. Like, it disappears. It goes out the window. Oh, yeah. Because that's not what you're focused on. You're focused on your emotions and what you're feeling. So by having this computer science background, it helps because I force myself back into that logical thought process. Okay, what do I do next? This is how I'm feeling. What can I do to fix it? What are these steps that I can take to fix it? or to get whatever I need going started. I have this big problem. Wow, this is really overwhelming to me. I can't handle this all at once. Okay, but what are some parts that I might be able to do right now? Okay, I can, like you said, price Spider-Man today. That works, and that gets rid of some of the problem. And that's how I That's how I don't see it's funny because it compart, compartmentalizing, mm-hmm. did, I, did I say that okay? Yes, mm-hmm. you did. Better than the opening. Um, <laughs> When I think I'm having anxiety or a panic attack, I have my checklist. The first thing I do is I check my blood sugar because low blood sugar feels like an anxiety attack. If it's low blood sugar, I know right off the bat, nothing to worry about, eat some sugar, I'm good to go. Then if the sugar's okay, then I'll make sure, all right, did I have enough water to drink? Am I dehydrated? I go through the checklist so that the last thing it, it can be, not the first thing, which it was always, now it's the last thing. Uh, and by the time I'm done with my checklist, the panic attack's usually gone. Because you've already worked through step by step. Right, and you talk about the computer science. I'm doing it you know, through my, through my body and through my checklist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's already what you were doing. It's those logical steps that you were already taking to figure out whether or not it was a panic attack, but applying it in a different way. So you were already doing it. You just didn't know you were doing it. <laughs> So is there a place, um, is there a website that people could go to? Um, we know that you have a GoFundMe page if you want to give that out and where people can reach out to, to Pauline. Yeah, so um, my GoFundMe, I think uh, it's GoFundMe.com forward slash Emma underscore Gofi, G-O-F-I. And then the website is GoFidog.org, so G-O-F-I-D-O-G.org. Um, on there you can find like a recipient application which is what I filled out so if you want to receive a service dog so the cost for training these dogs is around $35,000 which is a lot of money wow but when you break it down it's five days five or six days a week from nine to two of training every single day for two years so if you think of that that's less than a I mean that's more training than a full-time job and way less money for that amount of time so 35000 over two years, that's not a very good salary, we wouldn't think, right? Um, and that's where that figure comes from. But what she does is she realizes that most people who are getting service dogs are inundated with medical bills. 
And so she asks that we raise a base minimum of $5,000. And that's it. That's all she asks us to raise. Obviously, our goal is that $35,000, but she only asks for $5,000 because she understands that people are inundated with medical bills. She's not trying to make money out of this. She's just trying to help people. And that $5,000 covers all the food and vet costs for the first four months of their life, which realistically, it costs a lot more than that to raise a puppy for the first four months. So she's absolutely incredible, and she keeps them for those four months so that she can weed out any medical issues because if a dog is born with a heart murmur, it can't be an individual service dog, but it could be like a group therapy dog. Um, But the dogs also can grow out of heart murmurs just like people can. You can grow out of them. So she tries to weed out any medical issues early, and then she tries to match the recipient with the service dog's personality as best that she can. So she's not going to give somebody in a wheelchair a super active dog that needs to be outside four hours a day. And for someone like me who suffers from depression and I, there are some days where I just straight up can't get out of bed, she wasn't going to give me a really hyper puppy either because I wouldn't be able to keep up with her. And that wouldn't be fair to either of us. It would hinder my healing, <laughs> my getting better, and it wouldn't be good for the dog either. So Aurora is the sweetest, chillest puppy I have ever seen. Most people don't even believe she's only eight months old because she's so calm. And that's what the owner breeds for. She breeds these dogs. And whenever people hear the word breed, they just run the other direction. And her family is very experienced in breeding these dogs. They don't have a very closed off like genetic line or anything like that. They're perfectly healthy. They have to be to be service dogs. But she trains them for behaviors like they are calmer than the, the average dog. They're not good at playing by themselves because you don't want a service dog to just find a toy on the floor and play with it and get distracted from its owner. So my dog is not good at playing by herself, which isn't a typical puppy behavior. Normally, puppies will tear everything apart and they'll get into everything. (laughs) And she doesn't do that. She's destroyed one phone charger of mine. And that's it. And she's eight months old. So I take that as a win. really good. I just want to thank you for taking the time today to come up and talk with us. It has been, I have to say, I'm looking at my paper and I had all these pre-planned questions I was going to ask you. And though I didn't get a lot of my questions answered, that is okay because I learned so much more than in what I was going to ask about. So, and in hearing your story is amazing. It's very inspiring. And I will definitely need to have her back. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. I think that you'd be um, a great, uh, I think you have a lot more to offer to our listeners. And I would personally like to invite you anytime to come up to to Fuller. Maybe we uh, come back here, but I'm also going to invite you to to Fuller Hospital to come. Maybe maybe we could see about having you talk to our adolescents about your experience, not as a direct care worker, essentially, but just as your experience as somebody who at 16 years old started struggling with their mental health and how many, how much success and how many strides you've made to get to where you are today. Your success story. So Carrie, um, why don't we go over the usual list of suspects that people can get um, help from if they're uh, struggling right now? Absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, if you're listening to our podcast and you have any questions or want some follow up from any of the resources that come on our show or from us directly or have questions, you can go to mental illness at WARARadio.com. For uh, more information regarding local resources around in within Massachusetts, 
and also the in Rhode Island area. Um, we have a great resource here in the Attleboro community through the You Are Not Alone drop-in center, and that's a monthly drop-in center in which we create a safe and welcoming and an anonymous environment for you to come and get resources on mental health, substance abuse, and domestic violence. And for more information on the You Are Not Alone drop-in center, you can go to our Facebook page at, at Attleboro Recovery. Um, or you can contact us at 508-222-1212, extension 1951. Um, in addition to that, if there's any questions that you may have regarding um, services at my hospital, uh, Fuller Hospital in Attleboro, Massachusetts, we're an inpatient psychiatric hospital, but we also offer outpatient services. Um, you can contact me directly at 508 508- 761-8500, extension 2354. And lastly, we have another great resource that Emma provided for us. Um, and this is a national line, you said? Yeah, it's a national crisis text line. National crisis text line. And what you would do is, if you are in need of reaching out and want to utilize this national crisis text line, you can uh, type the word HOME to 741741. Thank you, Emma, so much for being with us today. Thank this you. This has for been having um, me. a great experience, and we're happy to have you, and we absolutely welcome you back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Emma. Thank you, uh, Carrie. And um, for everyone out there, remember that we say it all the time you are not alone, and you're not. And if worse comes to worse, there's no harm, and you don't have to feel bad in dialing 911 if you don't feel right. That's what people are there for, and they will get you in the right direction. So um, for everyone here, I want to thank Austin Ricketts uh, for taking the time out uh, to be our uh, audio engineer. And for everyone out there, um, please be well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.